following resource is from Welford Baptist Church. We'll grab your Bibles and go to the New Testament book of 2 Peter, chapter 3, as we conclude our study of this beautiful book with verses 14 through 18. It's been a good study. And we bring it to a close tonight with some some powerful uh, scripture here. I'm desperate to see our church grow, aren't you? That's our desire. Why do we want to see our church grow? Do we want to see it grow just to have more people? Well, obviously we want more people because that means more people that can get saved and more people, if they're already believers, can get plugged into the church and help us serve and, and reach people with the gospel. Do we want the church to grow to have more money? Well, obviously, the more money we have, the more mission work we can support, and the more ministry we can do, and so that's a good thing. What about being bigger than all the other churches around here? I'm not really interested in that. You know, you can have a big church and and not be uh, spiritually mature, and not be where you need to be in your relationship with Christ. Someone visiting recently uh, on a Sunday morning told me, this is the biggest church I've ever been in. And I thought, well, you know, it's all in your perspective, right? I mean, if you're used to going to a 40 or or 50 member church, then this is a pretty big sized church. But if you're used to going to the mill or somewhere where there's like thousands of people, then, you know, it's, it's smaller in comparison. So I think we would all agree we want our church to grow. And if we can agree on that, then why do we want it to grow? I think we want it to grow because that's God's desire for a church. And in order for a church to grow, then it has to start with us. We've got to grow personally. We've got to grow spiritually. There's no way our church is going to grow the way God wants it to grow unless we start with ourselves. So this passage concludes the second letter of Peter and brings our series to a close. And uh, he talks about how we can grow in grace and grow in the knowledge of what grace is all about. Um, there's some critical things we should be doing. Let's read verses 14 through 18 of Second Peter 3. Follow along in your Bibles. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. You therefore, beloved, know, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Peter and Paul had an interesting relationship. In Galatians 2, we read that Paul rebuked Peter for his failure to fellowship with Gentiles when fellow Jews were present, which was wrong. Here, Peter tells us that Paul's writings are hard to understand. And I think we all could agree to that. You read Romans, and sometimes you're like, what's he saying? Until you really dive deep, and you read some commentaries, and you read what you know, God is saying through his apostle With different callings and different methods, Peter was called primarily to minister to the Jewish believers, Paul to the Gentiles. And Peter and Paul 
They illustrate what it takes in the body of Christ to grow as we find unity in the midst of diversity. They didn't agree on everything, but they did agree on the main purpose of the gospel and what God had for them. So, as believers, Peter describes that we're to be without spot. That means to be clean and pure and unspoiled, no dirt, pollution, or contamination of sin whatsoever. So how do we accomplish that? Well, as believers, we're to be confessing our sins always, all day long. Look at verse 14. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. Now, what's he referring to when he says, since you are waiting for these? Well, he described the coming of the Lord. He talked about the great day of the Lord. And so as we're waiting for Jesus to return, because he hasn't come back yet, what would he be doing? Well, we're to be found without spot or blemish and at peace. And that means we've got to be constantly, constantly confessing our sins all day long. Now, obviously, when we get saved, we... Uh, say a confession of sin. The Bible says whoever confesses Jesus before the, the Father, that Jesus will confess uh, us before the Father. So that's why we get saved, because we confess him. But as we're saved and we're believers, we still have to go through confession. We still have to go through repentance each and every day. As we're walking in constant communion and fellowship with Christ, we're walking throughout our day confessing when we mess up, when we, we say things we shouldn't, or maybe we did something that we shouldn't do. Just being in the world means that we have this, this world of pollution, of sin that contaminates us. It, it goes in our eyes. It goes in our ears, even when we're trying to stay clean. It causes things to cross a to come across our minds that we don't want there. And so we don't, we don't harbor them. We, we let them go. Therefore, as believers, we walk in open confession. And notice the words, without spot or blemish and being at peace. You know, whenever we start meeting with uh, prospective deacons, as, as we've nominated deacons for the next deacon cycle, um, it, it always comes up this common theme that I just don't feel worthy to be a deacon. Because we read, you know, where it talks about in uh, 1 Timothy 3, where it talks about the qualifications of a deacon. And right before that, it talks about the qualifications of a, of a pastor. And you read those and you're like, yeah, I just, I don't meet all those qualifications, you know. And that's okay because this isn't talking about being perfect. Without spot does not mean perfection. It doesn't mean without sin. It doesn't mean that you shouldn't feel unworthy. We all should feel unworthy without Christ. But what it means is we're to live pure lives both inside the church in the way we treat one another in the way that we fellowship with God and outside the church in the world in other words no one should be able to point to one of us and blame us for a brain or maybe something we've said or the way we've acted this means that we must not be living like we want instead of how God says I remember one time I was sitting in, a, in an oil change business and I struck up a conversation with the clerk as, he was changing, as they were changing my oil and he was out front. He was running the cashier uh, position. And, and we got talking about the Lord and we got talking about church and you know, I asked him if he was involved in church and we talked about his faith. And I remember, I'll never forget what he said. He said, I live by my own set of rules. 
And I wanted to, you know, when I came time to pay for my car, say, well, I live by my own set of rules. I don't pay $50, you know, to get an oil change. I, it's free. You know? and that wouldn't go over very well, would it, right? But that's a rule. They pay, you pay $50, get your oil changed. That's the way it is with, with God and, and, and creation and, and living and, and the way we live. We don't set the rules. God sets the rules. So this means we must not be living how we want instead of how God says, we must also not be doing our own thing. Not just doing what we want to do apart from what God's calling us to do. We must not be living in sin. And what this means is we don't stay in sin. Uh, there's sections in the scripture that talk about uh, without sin. And it's not talking about that we no longer sin. So other translations tra translate those sections, do not continue in sin. And that's what it's talking about. We don't neglect or ignore God. And so it's a process of growth. And, and if we're going to grow in grace, we've got to be part of that process and not hinder it. And if you're thinking, you, you know what it is that you just need to try a little harder, that's not the answer. If you just tried a little harder, you could, you could grow in grace. No, I've got good news. It's not a matter of trying harder. That produces a lot of guilt in the end because we never try, we never are able to, to reach a place where we're doing all that we can enough. It's not a matter of me just trying a little harder. No, it's a matter of grace. And God giving us that grace and us enjoying that grace. So we're not to take that for granted and we're not to take the... The opportunity that Jesus waits to come back and assume it's just going to be more and more years until he comes back. We must keep our eyes on his return and not become lazy or complacent because then we'll much more likely fall into sin. And if this happens, we're caught unprepared, we're spotted, we're dirtied when Jesus comes and we're blamable. 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Verse 15 teaches, we must count the patience of the Lord as his desire for souls to be saved. Look at verse 15. That you may be blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. We're never to look upon the waiting of Jesus to come back and return to this earth as unconcern or lack of care for people in this world. No, God loves everybody. And the reason he hasn't come back is because he wants people to be saved. He wants people to trust in him. And this verse says, remember, we live in a wicked and twisted generation as Peter lived in, as Paul lived in, scoffers who ridiculed the coming of Christ as it hasn't happened and they said it's foolishness. They say that the world is, is operated by uh, natural laws or God, if God existed and if he cared about the world, he'd take care of, of certain things. But it's not because God's forgotten us or he's lost control or he doesn't care. No, quite the opposite. God cares so much, he doesn't return because when he returns... It's going to be the end. And people are going to be judged. The Lord loves and cares for people so much. He longs for people to be saved. In the meantime, notice some people twist the scripture to their own viewpoint. Look at verse 16. 
He writes, as he does in all his letters, talking about Paul, when he speaks in them of these matters, there are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. Sometimes you'll hear somebody say, you know, that scripture, that just doesn't make sense. I, I don't think that's right. And it's because they're not, their heart's not right. But if we're, we're right with the Lord, then we'll understand what the Lord is saying through the scriptures. The Lord is not waiting to return so that we can twist the scriptures to enjoy this world and its pleasures and possessions even more. We've learned earlier in our study of this beautiful book that the earth is going to be dissolved. It's going to be uh, burned up, uh, utterly melted down. Our task then is to be more evangelistic. is to reach more and more people for Christ. The fact that Christ has not yet returned should not cause us to become complacent, lethargic, or worldly. It should make us more diligent to reach and fulfill the mission of Christ. But if we twist the scriptures... And allow the patience of God to stir the thought that, well, we've got more time, we can do what we want, we can eventually repent, then we're only hurting ourselves and we're hurting others. There are those who contend that it was not until centuries later that the church recognized Peter, James, Paul's writings to be inspired. But that's not the case. He's referring to Paul's writings here. Notice he says, he says, on the same plane as the other scriptures. Peter knew Paul was inspired by the Holy Spirit and says so in verse 16. And then notice verse 17. While it is true that belief affects behavior, it is equally true that behavior affects belief. Verse 17. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own Stability. So we see in this verse the theme that we're to have as believers, our duty, we're to beware, we're warned, lest we be led astray into error. And note that Peter addresses the believers of the churches as beloved. He, he loves God's people and it has been his love that has stirred him to warn them of this danger, of the terrible judgment to come, of the, of the false prophets. And while it's true that belief affects behavior, it's equally true that behavior affects belief. For example, if you study evolution long enough and, and you buy into that, you'll become more and more aware that uh, as you read what it really says, it's really uh, untrue. It, it's, it's not real. But people continue to buy into it believing that we're nothing more than animals because that allows them to live and justify their own behavior. If there's no God, if everybody just evolved from lower species, then there's no accountability. There's no judgment. We can do whatever we want. Peter says, I know you know the truth, but be careful because if you choose to live worldly, it can change your theology. In other words, your practice, your behavior will change your belief. And then he gives them this warning not to be carried away in the air of lawlessness. So we've been warned. We've studied this whole letter. If you've been here any length of time over the last many weeks as we've gone through these three chapters, we've read and studied. We've been warned. It's a, it's a letter of great love and salvation that talks about God. It also warns about false teachers and the perversion and the twisting that they will do. And because we've been warned, we're accountable. We've got to guard and stand against false teachings. Notice Peter closes in verse 18. By not saying grow in devotion, 
He doesn't say grow in passion. He doesn't even say grow in holiness. No, he closes and he says grow in grace. Because grace is not the starting point. Grace is the only point. Look at verse 18. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Remember what I started with by saying I'm desperate to see our church grow. And I know you are too. And the reason is if you don't grow, you die. Growth is evidence of life. And I want to be part of a living, maturing, growing church. Not a dying church. And the same is true in our individual lives. Growth spiritually is a sign of life. Either we're growing or we're dying. If we're not growing spiritually, then guess what? We're dying spiritually. And so my prayer is that we as a people will grow collectively as a church and be alive for Christ. Because that's what God wants. He says in his word in Colossians 4.12, Always struggling on your behalf in his prayers that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. Now look at that first phrase there on the screen. That you may stand mature. What's that talking about? It's talking about growing. It's talking about becoming more and more Christ-like. This is God's will for you, says Epaphras. To grow, to mature, to enlarge your tent in the words of the prophet Isaiah. uh, To strengthen and move forward and upward. And he's not just talking to the Colossians there. He's talking to us. This is God's word for us today, to grow and mature in grace. The Apostle Paul says practically the same thing to the church at Ephesus in Ephesus, Ephesians 4, verse 14. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. No, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head which is into Christ. So there's that word again, grow. God wants us to grow. And by us having a desire to grow ourselves, we refuse to just be average. We refuse to just be good enough. Uh, have you seen the movie Courageous? Everybody seen that movie, like that movie about the sheriff's department and um, fatherhood and being a parent? I'll, I'll never forget that scene. And I, if you hadn't seen it, I'm not going to ruin it for you, but I'm just going to share a little scene. I'll never forget that scene where, you know, the main character, he, 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 um, he's wanting to be the best dad he can be. And he's, he's at this cookout with his, his friends, I think three or four of them. And they're around the grill. And you remember, you know, he's talking about wanting to be a, uh, 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 the kind of dad that God wants him to be to his, to his family. And I remember one of his friends says, well, you're a, pretty, you're a good enough dad. Remember that scene? And remember he, what he said? He said, I don't want to just be good enough. I want to be the best. I want to be what God wants me. I don't want to be average. Famous American business writer Lou Vickery has put it like this. Nothing average ever stood as a monument to progress. When progress is looking for a partner, it doesn't turn to those who believe that they're only average. It turns instead to those who are forever searching, reaching, and striving to become the best they possibly can. If we seek the average level, we cannot hope to achieve a higher level of success. Our only hope is to avoid being a failure. 
And that's the way some people live. You know, they're like, you know, if things don't go bad today, then it's a pretty good day, <laughs> you know? That's not real success, is it? Success is not just not, not failing, it's succeeding. And it's like that in the Christian life as well. The problem with average is it's just as close to the bottom as it is to the top. Over and over again in Scripture, we're warned against settling for mediocrity. Jesus said to the church at Laodicea in Revelation 3, I know your works, you're, either, you're neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. Can I just pause there to say, early on in my Christian walk, I would read that, that scripture about uh, lukewarmness, you know, and you're, you're not hot or you're cold. I'd rather you be, and I, how, why, does, why does he want us to be cold, you know? Because you think of cold being lifeless or dying. That's not what he's talking about. You see, in the Middle East, Cold and hot were actually both positive things, just like it is today. I mean, you can have a cool drink of water on a hot day, that's a good thing. Or you can take a hot shower when you're dirty, and that's a good thing. So in the Middle East, they had, they had this cool water they would, you know, they would actually drink and they would use for food and, and, and beverage, but then they had hot springs that they'd actually wash their clothes in. You know, and so that's why he says that. He's saying, okay, I'd rather you be hot or cold, but I don't want you to be lukewarm. He says, so because you're lukewarm, verse 16, and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you. The, the literal word there means vomit you out of my mouth. God says to the, through the prophet uh, uh, Jeremiah, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. What does God promise to people who seek him half-heartedly? Not a thing. Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. That's the first and greatest commandment, Matthew 22. So we must never settle for average, for just being good enough. There are two roads, two paths, two choices in life. There's a road that leads to life, and there's a road that leads to death. There's a road that leads to light, and a road that leads to darkness. There's a road that leads to heaven and a road that leads to hell. And we're on one of those two roads. And we're either growing or we're dying. And I'm calling attention to the fact that that's where we are. We're either headed in the right direction or we're headed in the wrong direction. You're either moving toward a blessing or you're moving away from God. And the question is, where are we on that path? You see, the first step toward real revival is to to take place in our hearts. If we want our church to be revived, our individual hearts have to be revived. And that's the prayer of my heart. I know it's the prayer of your heart. We need to become so dissatisfied with our sin that we develop a holy discontentment. And what I mean by that is we're not content where we are. We refuse to settle for average. We cry out to the Lord, Lord, grow me. Grow me in you. My heart has no desire to stay where doubts arise and fears dismayed. Though some may dwell where these abound, my prayer, my aim is higher ground. Lord, lift me up and let me stand by faith on heaven's table land. A higher plane that I have found. Lord, plant my feet on higher ground. Now let me just say a few things about growing in grace before I conclude the message tonight. When I talk about growing in grace, what am I talking about? Let me first of all talk about what it isn't, okay? Number one, growing in grace is not just learning more facts. Don't get me wrong. Information is important. It's helpful. But just adding more information into your mind does not guarantee spiritual growth. 
You can't equate more information with more growth. The smartest and most informed individuals are not always the most mature. There's a big difference between information and application. You can know a lot about God, have all kind of Bible verses memorized, but if you aren't applying that information in the way it changes your life and your heart, then what, real, what good is it really? It's like, it's like if you take uh, some precious seed that you want to grow into a, a tree or a plant or a bush and you throw it on the sidewalk. It's not going to grow there. It's not going to grow roots. It won't produce anything. Facts alone do not translate automatically into growing in grace. So often when we talk about being a growing Christian, our first inclination is to, you know, go to Amazon.com, log in, see what kind of books we can find. What kind of uh, extra Christian periodicals can we buy? Some video series or Bible study materials. And all those are good things, but just pouring more information into your mind, if you don't let it settle into your heart and change who we are it won't necessarily make us grow what we really need to do is apply the truth we already know most of us have been in church long enough we've got information we just need to apply what we have isn't that what jesus said as he concluded the great sermon on the mount he had given people all this information about the kingdom of god what it was he talked about giving and he talked about fasting and praying and what heaven is really all about and he talked about uh, the letter of the law but he said you know it's really loving your enemies he said it's the spirit of grace and what he had to say was revolutionary when he comes to the end of that unforgettable message, he says this, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. You see, that's the key. Applying what we know and practicing the information we have. Information alone cannot save us. It can help us. It can give us insight. But unless we apply it and internalize it and live it out, it doesn't have transforming power. So that's the first thing I want you to remember. Growth is not just merely more information. But secondly, growing in grace does not happen overnight. We live in a society of rapid changes. Uh, things change incredibly fast. Think about it. Politically, things can change. Our Senate right now stands 50-50. Democrat, Republican. Kamala Harris uh, makes the tying vote a lot of times. What would happen if one dies and then another one takes his place who's not of that party? Overnight, our political system will change. That's how fast and rapid things happen. Uh, socially, things happen. Economically, there's rapid change. The information age has ushered in paradigm shifts that we can't keep up with. All the technology and everything that's going on. But remember this. Things tend to change a whole lot faster than people wish they would change. And I wish it was possible for people to, to change, you know, like that. But that's not the way people work. We've got to realize we've got to be patient with ourselves and with others. Sometimes we love to point to the Apostle Paul and say, look how God changed him immediately, you know, on the road to Damascus. He was completely transformed and converted in that experience. And it was miraculous. 
But what we forget is that shortly after his conversion experience, Paul spent three years in relative obscurity and another ten years of obscurity in Tarsus before ever entering public ministry. What was he doing throughout all those years? Thirteen years. I think God was growing him, shaping him, forming him, teaching him, maturing him for the ministry. We want quick fixes. Why does God work this out? Someone has said, it's like you can grow a turnip in just a matter of days, but it takes a century to grow a mighty oak. God takes his time because he knows what's important. Growth is a process that doesn't happen overnight. Growing in grace takes time. Thirdly, growing in grace is not just keeping more rules. Rule keeping alone does not please God. Merely keeping the rules will not produce growth. Our hearts are strengthened by grace and nothing else. You see, Jesus got very angry with the Pharisees for this very reason. He called them hypocrites. He called them whitewashed tombs. He called others vipers or snakes or serpents because they looked good on the outside, but they were rotten to the core on the inside. They were keeping all the rules, but that's all they cared about. There was no kindness, no love, no grace, no compassion, no mercy. It just wasn't there. They were excellent uh, rule keepers, but they were dead on the inside. Who are we on the inside? Do we have the parts of the fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, so we talked about what growing in grace is not. Now let's talk about what growing in grace is, okay? Growing in grace is not accomplished by trying harder. It's accomplished by trusting in him. That's where real growth comes from. He's trustworthy. There are two unforgettable promises in the book of Philippians about how we can grow in the grace of God. For those of us who are Christians... Philippians 1.6 tells us this. He who began a good work in you will carry it out to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. That's a promise. Others, maybe some of you who are watching online or listening to our audio podcast, may not be a believer yet. You're not a Christian. You may be thinking, if I come to him, I don't know if I can make it. I don't know if I can continue being a Christian. If I can keep up my end of the bargain. And you feel like you're going to be all alone in that. Well, listen to these words from Philippians 2.13. For God is at work with you, helping you want to obey him, and then helping you do what he wants. I love that promise. Not only does he help me desire to do what is right, but he also helps me to do what is right. Am I becoming more and more like Christ every day? Am I full of grace and truth? Do I know him Better today than I did this same time last year. That's what God is looking for in the life of a church. That's what God is looking for in the life of believers. It's not about numbers. It's not about buildings. It's not about budgets. It's not about size. It's not about how slick our programs are. It's about Jesus and his people being full of grace and truth. So somebody's been a Christian for 20 years. That's wonderful. That's not the question. The question is, are they growing for those 20 years? 
I heard a story about a man who was passed over for a promotion in the workplace. He was incensed. They gave the job to a guy who had only been with the company for three years. The man said, I don't get it. I've been a faithful employee around here for 23 years. I have 23 years of experience. But you give this job to a guy who has three years experience. That's not right. His supervisor was very wise. He said, no, you're not the one who understands. You don't have 23 years of experience. You have one year of experience that you've lived over and over again for 23 years. That's the way it is with so many believers. They do the same thing over and over and over again. Not growing, not maturing, not reaching out, not striving. We don't want to just keep the same experiences over and over again. We want to grow. We want to go and grow in grace. Let me close with this story. George Mallory. He was a famed mountain climber who may have been the first person to reach the top of Mount Everest. In the early 1920s, he led three attempts to scale that formidable mountain, eventually losing his life on the third and final attempt in 1924. Before that last and fatal attempt, he had said, I just can't see myself coming down defeated. Mallory was an extraordinary climber and nothing would force him to give up. His body was found in 1999, well-preserved by the snow and ice, 27,000 feet up the mountain, just 2,000 feet from the peak. Give up, he did not. His body was found face down on a rocky slope, his head toward the summit, his arms extended over his head, his toes pointed into the mountain, his fingers dug into the loose rock, refusing to let go even as he drew his last breath. A short length of cotton rope, broken, was looped around his waist. When those who had set up camp for Mallory further down the mountain returned to England, a banquet was held for them. A huge picture of Mount Everest stood behind the banquet table. The leader of the group stood to be applauded and with tears streaming down his face, he turned, he looked at that picture and he said, I speak to you, Mount Everest, in the name of all brave men living and those yet unborn. Mount Everest, you defeated us once, you defeated us twice, you defeated us three times. But Mount Everest, we shall someday defeat you because you can't get bigger But we can. Now you may remember that in 1953, two climbers, Sir Edmund Hillary and Sherpa Tenzuk Norgay, reached the top. I don't know what challenges you're facing tonight. I don't know where you need to grow. Maybe you battle with with some addiction. Maybe you have a, a difficult family situation. Maybe you wrestle with pornography. Maybe someone's hurt you deeply. Maybe you've been knocked down so many times, you don't even remember what it feels like to stand up. Let me tell you something. That mountain will not get any bigger, but you can. So commit yourself afresh and anew tonight to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Thank you for listening to this podcast. For more information about our church, visit welfarechurch.org. Blessings.